Hello and welcome to this week's program. I'm Paul Nelson. Today we chat with internationally renowned poet Diane de Prima, perhaps the preeminent female poet associated with the Beat literary movement. Diane knew she wanted to dedicate her life to poetry at age 14. I remember distinctly I was standing in my backyard in Brooklyn, started to cry because it was a very sad thing to me in some ways. I, I knew that I'd have to not have a lot of things. There's a, not, I mean, material things, but I'd be kind of like cut off from a lot of regular human society. And being from a very large Italian family, I had a very strong sense of what that is you know, the regular daily life stuff, because that, that wouldn't be part of it. I just knew that intuitively. Her career in poetry has taken her to many places. It was teaching poetry in reform schools and penitentiaries in the West that led her to the inspiration for her epic poem Loba, where the mythic wolf goddess came to her in a dream. She chronicled the event in the poem. She came to hunt me down, carried down ladder, trust like game herself, and then set free, the hunted turning hunter. She came through stone labyrinths worn by her steps, came to the awesome thunder and drum of her name, the Loba mantra echoing through the flat flagstone walls. Some people see Loba as the feminine counterpart to Allen Ginsberg's epic Howl. We feel Diane de Prima will be regarded by future poetry historians as the most important female American poet of the second half of the 20th century. Today, it is our honor to simply call her our guest on the program, An Hour with Diane de Prima. I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for tuning in. If work is defined as vocation or a calling, I think it's fair to say that most people in our society do not have work. Yes, the politicians brag about the number of jobs created, but though jobs may sustain our physical lives, only work, true work, can give our lives a sense of purpose. True, this need can be met through a hobby or volunteer activity, but the joy of my work is that I can meet people who, in many cases, have done their life's work for many years, some for decades. Today's guest is one of the best examples of someone having a calling and working at it until achieving a level of mastery that will be recognized for, gen for generations, perhaps centuries to come. Today we chat with internationally renowned poet Diane de Prima. The author of 35 books of poetry and prose, Diane knew at age 14 that she wanted to be a poet and at that tender age made a lifelong commitment. Born in Brooklyn, she now lives in San Francisco where she works as a writer, healer, and teacher and studies and practices Tibetan Buddhism. Recent books include Pieces of a Song, Seminary Poems, and a new expanded edition of her epic, Loba. She is the latest visiting poet to perform and impart wisdom at the Northwest Spoken Word Lab as part of the Visiting Poets series and our guest today to talk about her life, her work, and Whatever tangents come up, after all, she is a practicing anarchist. Diane, welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, it's so nice to have you here. It's been just such a delightful weekend, and uh, we really want to have you back soon. Thanks. I've had a wonderful time here. Good. We hope that uh, you've, you've enjoyed your, uh, your treatment here. Now, you knew at age, I, I tell the kids this when I was preparing them for your visit. You knew at age 14 
that you wanted to spend your life writing poetry. It says mm-hmm. so in the back of uh, pieces of a song, your greatest hits. <laughs> and, you know, when I tell high school kids that during lectures, some of them are, now wait a second, how can someone know at 14 what they're going to do with the rest of their lives? But with you, that was the case. Yeah, I think I was a very serious little body all the way down to when I was five or something. I took the world very seriously. And... Um, you know, by the time I was 11, I had read my way through most of the philosophy in the Brooklyn Public Library, Carroll Park branch near me, near me, and um, found my way to the poetry. And when I reached the poetry, I thought, why would anybody bother with philosophy where you have to be consistent and put yourself in a box when in poetry, I didn't have these words, but you could hold all the paradoxes. And then I began to get very, very, very involved in this an early high school person with uh, the romantic poets who were very much out of, fa- out of fashion right then. You sort of had a lie in high school so you wouldn't be made fun of. R- romanticism and anything emotional was really out of fashion. And in reading the letters of John Keats, in which he really has a complete poetic, he talks about things like, if poetry come not as easily as the leaves to the trees, it had better not come at all. And things like, uh, I am certain of nothing but the holiness of the heart's affections and the truth of the imagination. These things rang very true to an adolescent and to my mind at that time. And at some point it began to be that I realized I didn't have to put Keats, Shelley, and so on on a pedestal and me way down there in the dust, but that I could match that vocation in my own life. And that was when I was 14, I, was, I remember distinctly, I was standing in my backyard in Brooklyn, started to cry because it was a very sad thing to me in some ways. I, I knew that I'd have to not have a lot of things. There's a, not, I mean, material things, but I'd be kind of like cut off from a lot of regular human society. And being from a very large Italian family, I had a very strong sense of what that is, you know, the regular daily life stuff, because that, that wouldn't be part of it. I just knew that intuitively. But at that point also, I began to write every day. I got a notebook and wrote on the front in Latin, I don't remember the phrase, but no day without a line, and began to write poetry every day. Well, there are a couple of threads there that I can immediately uh, latch onto, and some of the themes that I wanted to talk about. The notion that the romantics weren't out of style with you, perhaps the fact that you were female, and you could read something into that that the world was not ready for then, but is more ready for now. And also mm. the fact that the poetry came easily, like as easy as, as leaves to the trees, the notion of uh, not editing, not going back and re- erasing and rewriting and editing and what have you, which is a sort of a tenet of the Beat Generation with Ginsburg's famous words, first thought, best thought. And I guess yes. maybe these are themes we'll just touch uh, on as, as the mm-hmm. interview progresses. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'd really like to get a sense of biography here and to, to follow that up. After 14, you dropped out of college, a very prestigious college. You weren't getting served by that. Maybe you can tell us why dropping out of college was the right thing for you? Well, of course, at 14 I was in high school, but I started college just at the time I turned 17. Spent a year there, and it was the only year of my life, in a way it was a frightening experience, it's the only year of my life that I didn't write. I managed to squeeze out one intellectual poem in that year, and writing was mightily frowned upon by the English department, and there was no writing department, and I uh, it was the whole idea we were met with on the very first day was, we're here to teach you how to be good critics. And we don't, at all interested, we don't care about your creative process or your creative life. That's not what college is for. 
which is, I think, a very Protestant, um, Northern European kind of point of view, didn't serve me well. And within a year, not only me, or a year and a half, not only me, but all the people I was in my group who I was running with at that school had all dropped out either to go to another school or to, I took an apartment on the Lower East Side and began to write. And it wasn't too much later uh, that you started corresponding with Ezra Pound and then visiting him on a daily basis when he was uh, at St. Elizabeth's. I only visited him on a daily basis for a couple of weeks. I went down there when I was 26, but I did first write him when I was 19, and he wrote me back. We had some correspondence going, and then uh, when I had saved up the necessary amount of money, which I think was $55, the round trip on the bus was 25 I went down and stayed with people who were there in D.C. because they wanted to be near him and visited him at the hospital every day for a couple of weeks, yeah. Was he like that? Was he generous about meeting with younger poets? He seems to me as uh, being kind of a crusty old man. He was extraordinarily generous and extraordinarily eager to pass on information. He also had very strange ideas of how, what your powers might be. Like he told me that I should get... I had sent... One of the early correspondence things was I sent him... Uh, a program from uh, Pro Musica Antiqua, a group of early music performers, because he loved medieval music. I thought he'd be interested to see what was being performed in New York. And he wrote me back and said, get these guys on television, as if I had the <laughs> power to just stop and get them on television. <laughs> me, a 19-year-old poet living in a cold water flat. And, you know, so there was like his, but it, there was off the wall, but it also imparted to you a sense that you really could do anything you put your mind to. So it was a double-edged sword. And he was very, very generous, full of stories, um, always willing to sit down and tell us about him and Mr. Cummings or this and that. And I remember coming on, coming there one day. There were only a couple of visiting days a week, but we were allowed in, me and my roommate, every day because we'd come from New York, from far away that was in those days, on the bus. And so I came, it wasn't a visitor's day, and he was in his room at the, at the madhouse, translating the Chinese odes from his, that became his Chinese book of songs. And I felt very shy. I was 19. I said, I'm so sorry I'm interrupting your work, not having any idea that when somebody's incarcerated, <laughs> they have way too much time for their work. And he just laughed at me and said, well, I can work some other time. But here, he said, and he handed me this bag. It was food he'd stolen off the dining table in the madhouse to take back to the house of the of friends of his where I was staying. He said, one, give some food to that house, you're staying there and poets have to eat. You know, so on every level, he was not only generous intellectually, he was very aware of the practicalities of having come down on a bus with $30 in your pocket. Yeah. And trying to live as a poet in our society. Right, yeah. exactly. We're talking with Diane De Prima. She's an internationally renowned poet and author. She's got 35 books of poetry and prose out. And uh, she is the visiting poet at the Northwest Spoken Word Lab this season. I'm Paul Nelson. Well, it wasn't too long after that, just a couple of years, according to your bio in the back of Pieces of a Song, that you met uh, who were the folks who were to become known as the founders of the Beat Generation, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and company. How about uh, telling us how you met those folks? Well, I had been writing away in my own style of, of beat, but there was no such thing as beat, no such word as beat. I was very interested in the in the language of the streets right then, and I was writing, trying to write that slang. And I had written and published something called Thirteen Nightmares in a uh, in a very early anthology of, of beat work um, by edited by Seymour Crim. And I, um, 
somebody brought Hal to the house. We were all, we were having one of our nightly community dinners. All the actors and dancers and painters got together and brought bread and salad and I made soup and we all ate every night. And um, somebody brought it where, to the kitchen where I was stirring the soup and I just started reading it and I went out just to read it because my big struggle with my contemporaries and friends right there in that crowd, in that house, was that you couldn't write slang. If you write slang, nobody will know what you mean in 10 years. And they would argue with me. They weren't offended by the open forms, but using that language. And I would say, well, Francois Villon wrote slang, and we're still reading him, you know, but didn't get too far. So it was really great to see that stuff published and in print. Whereupon, I wrote a letter and sent the 13 Nightmares out to Allen Ginsberg. Got a letter back, interestingly, from Ferlinghetti. And um, I guess he passed my address on. And then when Alan and Peter and Jack were on their way to Morocco in um, early 1957, they stopped off in my house and stayed overnight, stayed a couple of days. And we had an, a total day-night never stopping of looking at poems, all of us looking at each other's poems and so on. And that's when I first met them. So there's a sense of that affinity of using slang, lang slang language, using the American vernacular, as William Carlos Williams mm. suggested, that uh, made you feel an affinity with, I guess, uh, calling yourself a beat poet. Well, we didn't call ourselves anything. It was later that the magazines called us that. But I think the other part, besides the language, was writing about your daily life, how's it, how it really was. The 13 Nightmares had roaches in them and people coming to turn off the meter on your gas because you didn't pay the bill. And, Everybody was really into that, to writing about what the life was instead of sugarcoating it. Yeah. A quote uh, that's often used in your publicity material is, a prolific poet whose relative obscurity compared to the men with whom she is usually associated is something of a scandal today. That's uh, Alex Cates Shulman from The Village Voice, written uh, in 1989. Now, you've had to struggle as a woman in what is still, by and large, a patriarchal world. Uh, and you've not only survived, but you've thrived. You've put up with a lot of crap in your life because of gender stuff, haven't you? That's, I would that's putting, so, it, that's yeah. putting it easy, isn't it? I would isn't say it? so, yeah, probably, yeah. yeah. Well, what was it like? I mean, you know, dealing with uh, Kerouac and Ginsburg and, and those folks, was there that kind of patriarchal attitude? No, there was no crap from them. I didn't get crap from the writers. I got crap to some extent from the publishers, I would say, you know, and the establishment. Yeah, but the writers know. The, art, the painters know, you know. I mean, there was, there was different ways you could be a woman on that scene, and uh, if you were if you th were thought thinking of yourself first of all as an artist, which I, I was, I did. I mean, I was ready to give up everything about regular life for the you know just so I could concentrate on the one thing, which was the work. So which you did, I, right, <laughs> yeah. right. But so it wasn't like I was I was looking for a guy to capture, and it wasn't looking like I was looking to be admired for my boobs or anything. It was just hey, you know. I'm another artist here, and we would have that kind of... Con the older guys, now, if you get Rex Roth on your couch, that's another story. Or worst, uh, Cla Claude Dahlenberg, he was, a fam he was famous at one point, prose writer. But um, not, not my contemporaries, but the, I think I got a lot of crap from, and it was unconscious on their part, from the uh, publishing world. Let me put it this way. By the time I had, by 1960, I had two poetry books and Dinners and Nightmares out. I had the New Handbook of Heaven, which is very innovative poetry, as well as my early beat book, This Kind of Bird Flies Backward. And I had Dinners and Nightmares, my first prose book, which I think is a prose classic. 
of the beat time, really, although I don't usually blow my own horn that much. Um, with those three books, if I had been male, I probably would have had something like New Directions or City Lights publishing me. But with those three books, I went on for the next, until 93, I didn't have a New York publisher. Uh, until 1993, and that, we're talking about something that was done by 1960. And when I finished the Loba that came out in 78, which is 184 pages of my epic poem, and I sent it to James Lachlan at New Directions, who was a dear friend, actually. I loved his work, and he was an older man, and a nice man. Um, he sent it back with a letter saying he had just taken on Gary Snyder, and Michael McClure, and they couldn't afford to take on anyone else. And my impulse was to write back and say, Jay, you don't get it. Because you've taken on Michael McClure and Gary Snyder, you can't afford not to take on Loba. It's the other side of the balance. But I still had a big remnant of Italian pride at that point, and I just said, hell with it, and did the book with a smaller press in Berkeley. But I don't think that was conscious, but I think that was, the, that was gender crap that was going on for me, and there was a lot of it. Has it improved uh, since the 50s? How has it gotten better? It's gotten better in some ways, hasn't it? It's gotten some better. I don't know if it's gotten that much better. I finished, <coughs> for, um, for Viking, I finished my autobiography, the first half of it, called Recollections of My Life as a Woman, in 1995. The first draft was complete. I got it back, so mutilated from my editor at Viking, who um, just kept trying to turn it into straight, regular American prose, whereas I was using the American, Italian, Brooklyn kind of syntax and talk, which is how I write prose. Um, it was just a mess, and it took me years to untangle it again, and it just back, went back off. Meanwhile, this man is the editor for Jack Kerouac's letters. He doesn't touch them. He, did the, he was a great editor for the book Some of the Dharma by Kerouac, which is huge, monstrous, crawls all over the page sideways and upside down. He didn't, he didn't turn that into regular American prose. So again, I think it's an unconscious thing. You know, you're a girl, you should write, you should write nice so that everybody can understand you. You can't go around doing these experimental things. Just like we saw in the Senate a few weeks ago when Jesse Helms uh, turned back uh, all the uh, female Congress uh, people, uh, yeah, the representatives, saying uh, it's not very ladylike what you're yeah, doing. Please be a lady, he said to one of them. Yeah, I don't think it was conscious. I don't think he realized he wouldn't have corrected that if that was, a, say, an autobiography by Allen Ginsberg. But it was an autobiography by Diane de Prima. And, you know immediately had to be turned into sort of pablum. Yeah. Uh, your lecture at a local high school was canceled because you have written what was described as, a, as an administrator there as erotica. You've written erotica in your past. Yet other authors who can be, quote-unquote, accused of the same thing, Michael McClure among mm -hmm. them, uh, had no such reception. They were, they were welcomed. Uh, the feeling of some associated with your visit suggests that it's no coincidence that it's gender-related. For a strong woman, I mean, we did have Ann Waldman in, mm -hmm. but perhaps we went to the alternative high school rather than the main high school, but first real strong women we try and bring into Auburn High, and they're like, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. Related? Mm -hmm. Do you think that's also related to the gender thing? Well, don't you? I think that um, it's really not so okay for women to write erotica. I think it's okay to write, if you're writing erotica and you're a woman and it's all stars and veils like uh, Anais Nin or something, and and, you know, swooning joys. But if it's also funny, 
and sometimes you're, you're, you're saying silly things about the, how, the, how the sex went or um, what the guy was like or what his various organs were like. That's just not... That goes too far. You're not supposed to be. You're not supposed to find sex funny if you're a girl. <laughs> oh, and the the question that I had as a follow up to that is, uh, why is our society still afraid of strong women? Why why is is everyone just afraid of themselves? I mean, I think it comes down to that. Strong women put in your face stuff that nobody wants to talk about, male or female, wants to see, wants to do. They put in your face strong emotions strong sexuality, and a real strong sense of the fact that we're, we're all going to die because, you know, women are very close to death in a way that men aren't. You got your blood every month. And even with all the modern technology, you face death when you face childbirth. So there's a way, and menopause is like a little rehearsal. You know, my partner says that men should have menopause envy because it gives us a chance to, like, go through and rehearse some of our feelings and some things we want to get in order before our life is over. It's like seeing an ending before the ending. So I think strong women um, represent the shadow, as the Jungians would say, a lot in this culture. It's just too much, you know. Got to write that one down. <laughs> you know, it's more like, that's like Jesse Helms, will you please talk like a lady? In other words, uh, someone who we can dominate, someone we're used to dominating and having the upper hand on. That, that yeah. comes very, across very clearly. One thing that you uh, mentioned about menopause during uh, one of your talks here, whether it was to the Institute for Community Leadership or uh, the high school, I think it was at the high school, actually, at Annie Wright High School in Tacoma, which was very happy to be the beneficiary of the uh, local high school's refusal to have you in, was that uh, since menopause, things opened up for you where you don't need that glass of wine to experience a, a change in consciousness. Something happened during well, the Well, what happened to me during... Uh, during six months of the process of, of the change was a, a big psychic opening where lucid dreaming became a very regular part of my experience. It wasn't that I was using the wine or anything for that before, but I felt that after that I was just playing too open and too sensitive to, to, to have myself, my psychic stuff jiggled around by all these substances or things. I even stopped coffee for about a year, but then I evened out enough so I have my morning cup of coffee again. But Your espresso, for crying out. My espresso, right. Hey, but, um, but it was more like, as part of the change, and I think people don't talk about this even in the books on menopause and women should know it, you can get more and more psychically open. It might not be that you're lucid dreaming every other night like I was I was doing healing work in my sleep and making decisions, talking to parents of people dying of AIDS, kinds of things, every, just about every second night. And I was wasn't tired in the morning, except if the business wasn't finished right in the dream, but it was, didn't leave you in a space where you felt like running out and dealing with the bank in the morning. Um, I think you should know that that can happen. It's not something you necessarily seek out, but that in the chemical changes, it's like in, in the north-north, like... Um, North Point parts of, um, of Alaska and so on, the women shaman stop being shaman when they get their blood and they start again after menopause. And they can go out and be in trance for seven days. Men have to come back in about two. I think that's partly that we carry more fat so we don't have to come back and eat. It's partly that kind of steady endurance rather than spurts of energy the way men work. It's just a different bio bioenergetics involved. And so it could come upon anyone, you know, and they could think that they're going crazy, especially in this culture, which if, if you cry, they think you're going crazy. So 
So it's good to know that, just that these things can happen. Yeah. We're going to have to uh, end uh, this segment of the interview, but come back in just a second. Our guest is Diane DePrima, internationally renowned poet and author. She was the visiting poet this fall at the Northwest Spoken Word Lab. If you'd like more information on the Spoken Word Lab activities or future visiting poets, call us at 253-735-6328. That's uh, toll-free outside the Puget Sound area, 888-735-6328. Or look us up on our website at splab.org.